Friends, as we begin our sermon series for Lent, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And just a reminder, if you're thinking something's off today, we're waiting until after communion to dismiss the children of worship, so hopefully not too many people left yet. This year for Lent, for these six Sundays, um, we are going to look at the phrases that Jesus said when he was on the cross. This will hold us in a certain moment in time in Scripture that as we go through each week, what took a day will spread into six weeks we will maybe feel Sunday after Sunday like we've been on the cross for a long time. But friends, the cross is the central event with which we see God's love poured out for us. And his resurrection is the central event of our faith that we celebrate on Easter Sunday. And so as it might seem during Lent that we're on the cross for a long time, I invite you to endure that And appreciate that Jesus was on the cross for a long time for us. And so today we'll turn to Luke 23, verse 34. These will be very short readings throughout Lent because it's just a sentence or two here and there. But before we do so, let's pray for God's blessing upon the word. God, you give us your word that it may be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So we pray that with the light that you give us, we may see your face, that we may see the cross clearly so that we can understand your love for us in our hearts. Lord, may we know this moment well, this day of crucifixion, that it may shape our understanding of who you are. So by the power of your word, illumined by the power of your Holy Spirit, Speak to us through these short and precious words of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Crucifixion is a shameful death. It is intentionally public that it can be intentionally humiliating. And it is painful. Because as your hands are nailed with your wingspan spread, you will essentially rest on the nails that have pierced your flesh and suffocate there, having to push up to catch a breath and you would be held there in this isometric position. If you want to later, see how long you can hold your hands apart with nothing holding them there, and imagine what that would be like to be hung upon the cross. Know that it's difficult to speak in these moments, and so that should put our attention even more so on the fact that anything Jesus found the strength to say, anything that Jesus found worth saying, deserves our special attention when it comes to these words that were said from the cross. And that that Jesus was born into the world for this. And that in the cross, his life comes full circle. 
Remember that when Jesus was born, there was no room for him in the inn. And now Jesus dies, betrayed, because there was no room for him in the hearts of the Pharisees, who were threatened by his wisdom and jealous of his popularity. Herod tried to kill Jesus at his birth, and another Herod shrugs in indifference as Pontius Pilate washes his hands of Jesus' death. And in this moment of crucifixion, what does Jesus do? Jesus prays. In Luke chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus' ministry begins with prayer. He prays at his baptism. And in that moment of prayer and baptism, God affirms him from heaven as one who is loved, with whom he is well pleased. And now Jesus closes his earthly ministry also with the word of prayer. He prayed at his baptism, and now he prays from the cross. In his baptism, God the Father affirmed God the Son to the people. And now in Christ's death, God the Son affirms the belovedness of the people to God the Father to forgive the very people who betrayed, mocked, abandoned, and murdered him. Jesus, in this moment of crucifixion, can no longer use his hands. Those hands that touched the lepers clean, that that touched the blind eyes into sight, the hands that took bread and broke it to feed 5,000 people, those hands are now nailed to a tree. Jesus can't do anything more with those hands that performed miracles, but he can still pray. When we throw up our hands, perhaps, and decide that there's nothing more that we can do or that, that we're helpless in the situation that we're in or that we're hopeless because of circumstance, we might be tempted to cash in, to give up, and to move on. And yet Jesus doesn't. Jesus sets the strongest possible example for us in that even when the crucifixion is occurring, he's still praying. Even as Jesus is dying, he's still praying. Even when he has reason to be despondent and vengeful and angry, Jesus keeps praying. And how does he pray? Not for his situation to be changed or for relief from the pain or for vengeance. These are the things that we would probably pray for. But Jesus prays for his enemies the very cause of his affliction, these are the people he prays for. This is true love and selfless love beyond our normal understanding. This is love for all people, regardless of how we perceive their deserving of love. In Matthew 5, Jesus taught us with these words, saying, you have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount to love our enemies. And Jesus told us to pray for those who persecute us. To pray for them, not against them. And Jesus practices what he preaches. Jesus loves his enemies and he prays for his persecutors, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, by his own example on the cross, teaches us to maintain our compassion for people who hurt us, to maintain our kindness for those who have an agenda against us, to bless those who betray us, and to forgive those who mock us. Jesus asks that the people be forgiven, for they don't even know what they're doing. And how could they? How could anyone in that moment know the gravity of the situation at hand? How could the soldiers know that they were crucifying God? Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. You might think about how many headlines of celebrities and political figures have had to reckon with their past and say, I was young, I was stupid, and I'll try to take responsibility now for what I was too naive or careless to take responsibility for then. Jesus forgives and even asks the forgiveness of people who haven't and many who won't take any responsibility for their actions. Now, friends, this does not give a license of power to abusers, nor does it remove our need to confess our sins before God so that we can seek to reconcile with God and neighbor. But these words of Jesus on the cross have a certain weight to them. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This is a picture of God's grace that is so much bigger than how we want to condition grace, than how we want to add a procedure to the, dispense, to the dispensing of grace. This is a picture of God asking for people to be forgiven, even though those people haven't asked to be forgiven. We rightly expect that people should apologize when they do wrong, and take responsibility for their actions. And we hold out hope that people will do that. We hold out hope that people will apologize even if we've never asked them for an apology. We're just hoping for the magic realization that they've wronged us. We hope for people to apologize and take responsibility for their actions. And then we hope that we just might forgive them for what they do. We just might forgive them if the apology is good enough. Jesus prayed for forgiveness for people who took no responsibility for their actions. That radical prayer from the cross shatters our small and conditional version of grace and forgiveness. And friends, if that doesn't bother you, I just invite you to pay attention closer to, to the weight of these words and if it does bother you, it's a reminder that God's grace is just bigger than our grace because we learn grace from God. And it's normal that we should take time like Lent to remember that simple concept that God's grace 
is so much bigger than our version of grace. God's capacity to forgive is far beyond our capacity to forgive. And that during Lent, maybe we take this time, these seven weeks on the cross, so that we can try to live into and with that bigger, fuller version of grace that Jesus put on display. That while he was crucified, he found a moment to catch a breath, to say out loud, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If we don't want to live into this version of grace, then we need to repray that section of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. God forgives us first. Jesus forgave us. And then we try to forgive others in response to God's overwhelming forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. That's where it starts, that we may forgive our debtors. This is where the prayer from the cross becomes gospel truth for us. Jesus forgives you. Jesus forgives you for the things you did for the things you didn't do. Jesus forgives you for that thing that you said that you shouldn't have. And Jesus forgives you for that time that you should have spoken up and didn't. Jesus forgives us for what we take responsibility for. And from the cross, we realize that Jesus forgives us even for what we didn't take responsibility for, for what we didn't even know. God's forgiveness and grace is almost offensive to our sensibilities. Jesus forgives us when we didn't know any better. Jesus forgives us when we did know better but didn't do better. Jesus forgives us before or even without trying to first argue the point that he's right and we're wrong. Jesus forgives Jesus asks the Father to forgive the crucifiers and all of us. Go and do likewise. Amen. Let's pray. God, there is a symbol that you have given us that we can remember your death, and that is the cross. And you have also given us a symbol to remember your forgiveness and your life. And that's the bread and the cup at the table of which we are about to partake. And we remember in this moment, as maybe we struggle with those who we don't want to forgive, or as we simply sit incredulous at your capacity to forgive us, that you died for us while we were still sinners. Lord, as we come to this moment of communion, we remember that this table is set for those who are forgiven by Jesus. That if it were up to our understanding, if it were based on our righteousness, our worthiness, or our holiness, then no one could, would, or should partake today of the bread and the cup. But we remember with those words, that prayer of yours on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
that we come to this table because we have been forgiven by you. And that it is up to your understanding, dependent on your righteousness, your worthiness, and your holiness, that we come to the table as people who have received grace and are growing in grace. And so as the bread and the cup strengthen and nourish our body, may you also strengthen our spirit to be people who forgive radically, to be people who surrender grudges, to be people who can forgive without the right apology. Father, forgive us for the moments when we don't know what we're doing. And help us to remember that you have forgiven our neighbor when they did not know what they were doing. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.